Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. I'm looking out on the capital city of Kyiv on day 51 of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. I'm Jake Tapper. Welcome to this special broadcast of The Lead, live from Ukraine. We're going to get to today's top headlines in my exclusive interview with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in just a moment. But first, I do want to pause and reflect on the human cost of this horrific war on victims young and old, those whose names we know those whom we don't. The Ukrainian Ministry of Defense shared this image of a blood-soaked stuffed horse left behind after the deadly massacre on a train station full of evacuees in the town of Kramatorsk one week ago today. The government says Ukrainian National Police will send this child's toy to the United Nations as evidence of what happened that day, evidence of a war crime, one that left seven children dead. Five were killed that day two more succumbed to their wounds only recently. We do not know if this stuffed animal's owner survived, but I'd like to ask you to think for a moment, just a moment today, about its possible owner, a child. Maybe told he or she can only bring one toy with them when they finally got a chance to flee their town. One beloved toy, and he or she chose this one. Now it's headed to the United Nations, and it's soaked in innocent blood. This is Tatiana Usimenko, a photojournalist with AFP Getty, took this image of her standing in her own yard in Bucha, not far from where I'm standing. She is weeping over the dirt grave of her son. A few individual flowers and some personal objects stuck into the mound of dirt to mark where he lies. Today, the regional prosecutor of Kharkiv says seven Ukrainian civilians were killed and 27 others wounded when Russian forces opened fire on two buses full of evacuees. This photo shows what was left of those two buses. Along the Ukrainian coast in Mariupol, heart-stopping new video showing the unbelievable scale of destruction in that maritime city. A local official says early estimates show as many as 22,000 innocent people have been killed in that city, Russians claim. They have made new advances there today. And Ukrainian officials say two Russian long-range bombers struck Mariupol with cruise missiles. The head of the police force here in Kyiv says more than 900 bodies have been discovered around the capital region since the Russian army withdrew earlier this month. The Kremlin claims today that it fired a long-range missile from the Black Sea and destroyed a military facility outside Kyiv one that produced and repaired anti-aircraft missile systems. That's particularly notable as a U.S. official confirmed Ukraine's claims that its missile sank one of Russia's most important warships in the Black Sea. The Ukrainian Armed Forces says they know the Russians are likely taking their revenge for that sinking and, quote, we are ready. We are resisting. I sat down earlier today with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who told me 
that the sinking of the Moskva is quite, is quote, not a tragedy for us. He also spoke about the unimaginable losses faced by Ukrainian families, moms and dads, brothers and sisters. Here's just part of our conversation. A Russian warship, the Moskva, the one that Ukrainian soldiers told to F off, um, sank. Um, the Russians say, and the Russians are liars, but the Russians say it sank on its own. Can you offer some clarity and evidence as to what happened to that ship? We know that it does not exist anymore. For us, it is a strong weapon against our country. So its sinking is not a tragedy for us. I want you, the rest of the people, to realize that. The less weapons the Russian Federation that attacked our country has, the better for us, the less capable they are. This is important. And about what happened to it, the history will tell. Do you have any idea how many Ukrainian soldiers or Ukrainian civilians have been killed? I know. I know about... How many? Uh, As of now, based on the information we have, because it's very difficult to talk about civilians, since south of our country where the towns and cities are blocked, Kherson, Berdansk, Mariupol, further east, the area to the east where, where Volnavaha is. We just don't know how many people have died in that area that is blocked. Let's take Volnavaha as an example. Volnavaha, as other towns, are empty. They are all destroyed. There are no people there. So it's difficult to talk about it now. As to our military, out of the numbers we have, we think that we lost 2,500 to 3,000. In comparison with the Russian military, who lost about 19 to 20,000. That's the comparison. But we have about 10,000 injured. And it's hard to say how many will survive. I, I'm sure you have seen the video of the Ukrainian mom finding her son in a yeah. well and her sorrow, her crying, just is devastating to hear. <laughs> and you have seen a lot of videos like that. What is it like for you as the president of this country to see those videos, to hear the crying of the moms? This is the scariest I have seen in my life in principle. I look at this first of all as a father. It hurts so, so much. It's a tragedy. It's suffering. I won't be able to imagine the scale of suffering of these people. Of this woman. It is a family's tragedy. It's a disaster. It's the dreams and the life you've just lost. We live for our kids. That's true. Kids are the best we were given by God and by family. It is a great pain for me. I can't watch it as a father. 
only because all you want after this is revenge and to kill. I have to watch as the president of the state where a lot of people have died and lost their loved ones. And there are millions of people who want to live. All of us want to fight, but we all have to do our best for this war not to be endless. The longer it is, the more we would lose. All these losses will be just like that one. You can see the entire exclusive interview with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky on State of the Union. That's Sunday morning at 9 o'clock Eastern and again at noon Eastern. Uh, Let's discuss just that part of it with CNN Chief International Correspondent Clarissa Ward. Clarissa, thanks for joining us. So what do you think about his answer about viewing the sorrows of this war as a father versus as a president? The, The notion that as a dad he would want revenge But as a president, he has to think differently. I thought that was interesting, almost like he's talking himself through this relatively new profession he now has. Yeah, and I think it really speaks to his humanity and to his openness. You know, it's such a stark contrast when you look at President Zelensky and you see how he was with you. He's very casual. He's unpretentious. He's open. There's no massive entourage. He's dressed casually as sort of befits the moment. He answers you sincerely. He talks about his feelings as a father. And this is something that's been a huge part of his success, his ability to connect with Ukrainians as a human being. And then you look at, on the other hand, President Putin, whose family we never see, whose family we know very little about, except what's been revealed by investigative journalists, who is cold and only talks to people at the end of 20-feet tables, uh, who has a sort of cruel, dead-eyed expression. And you see such a huge difference between the type of leadership. And I do think it's easy to understand that conflict that Zelensky is talking about there, where as a father and as a human, you want revenge. But as a president and as a leader, you have to make very tough decisions about what is the quickest way to put a stop to the bloodshed. What is the best way to end the war? Do you want to see it protracted and dragged out? Do you try to stop it sooner by making concessions? And this for any leader in a sort of arena of conflict is, of course, the toughest decision to make, Jake. Yeah, and he also said it's so important that this war isn't endless because of these horrific atrocities we're seeing, so many people being killed, innocent civilians. But, you know, that, that desire comes amidst European officials telling CNN that U.S. officials and their allies are increasingly assessing that there is no short-term end to this in sight at all. And it's such a stark uh, sort of contrast from the beginning of this war when we were watching the invasion unfold, the expectation from most officials uh, in the U.S. certainly was that Kyiv would potentially fall in a day or two. That hasn't happened. The war grinds on. We've got this massive offensive poised to begin in earnest any moment now. And it's a very ambitious offensive from the north, from the east, from the south. Russian forces are going to be facing really stiff resistance. And what we've seen as well that I think wasn't anticipated is that 
potentially Ukraine has a chance of actually winning this war. And obviously, for a leader like Volodymyr Zelensky, that is very appealing, the possibility of an outright victory, particularly against an adversary like Russia, which is much larger and has a much more sophisticated military. And yet, you have to weigh that allure of that potential victory at some point in the distance against the losses that will be incurred as a result of allowing this conflict to grind on. U.S. officials, as you mentioned, talking about this potentially lasting uh, through the end of the year. That is much, much longer than anyone had anticipated. And you can only expect the sorts of scenes that we have really only witnessed in social media videos and from satellite images that have taken places, taken place in cities like Mariupol, where thousands are believed to be dead, where uh, maternity hospitals have been decimated, that you're going to see more of that playing out across the country as the second offensive gets underway. And so it comes back to that point again, that constant push-pull, that tension between wanting to end the war, not wanting to concede an inch, but also really wanting to preserve innocent life uh, to the best of his ability. Yeah, and we have a lot more on that subject in the full interview, which airs on Sunday. Clarissa Ward live for us from Dnipro, Ukraine. Thank you so much. A city leader along Ukraine's southern coast says five people were killed today by Russian cluster bombs. A series of explosions scattered in a populated area. CNN's on the ground getting a close-up look at the gruesome damage. Plus, the U.S. response today when Russia warned of, quote, unpredictable consequences if the U.S. keeps sending military aid to Ukraine. Stay with us. We are continuing with our world lead now in the wake of yesterday's sinking of that Russian warship in the Black Sea, the result of what the Pentagon now says they assess was an Ukrainian missile strike. People along Ukraine's seacoast are now worried they will become targets for Russian retaliation. Earlier today, CNN's Ed Levandera was in Mykolaiv, which just took a hit from, among other things, what appear to be Russian cluster bombs. Here's what he found. The cluster of explosions jolted this residential neighborhood in Mykolaiv Friday morning. Witnesses say some people were walking their dogs in a park at the time. One of the munitions struck just feet away from an Orthodox church. You can see the impact spot of one of the munitions that went off this morning. And as you look around here, you can see the impact and the, the damage done to this church here as well. Multiple people were killed and more than a dozen others injured. Paramedics treated victims on the scene. Across the street, under the shattered windows of an apartment building, this man told us he helped drag two injured people into a store for safety. Shum, shum noise. The noise of a rocket flying and explosions. That's what I saw and heard when I was in the shop. People ran into the store and I saw people scared. I saw people dropping to the ground from explosions. The sounds of explosions inside the city started around mid-morning and appeared to strike at least three different locations. Mykolaiv authorities released this video of a private home burning after a rocket strike. Mykolaiv strikes come as residents in southern Ukraine are worried about Russian retaliation for the sinking of the Moskva warship in the Black Sea and Russia's renewed offensive in eastern Ukraine. In recent days, CNN has witnessed long convoys of families fleeing Russian-occupied areas near Mykolaiv. 
This bombing struck a densely populated area. Galina Mironchuk says she was brushing her hair when the bomb landed just outside her apartment window. The blast shattered the glass and shattered her sense of peace. Did you think something was going to happen to you? I didn't think of anything, she tells me. I thought that was the end of the world. The recent attacks have also crippled parts of the city's infrastructure. The water has been out for three days, forcing hundreds of people to get water from a river and natural spring. This man evacuated his mother and plans to stay in the city to fight off the Russians. How worried are you that the Russians are getting closer? It worries me a lot, he tells me. That's why I sent my mother away. That's why we are getting ready. We are still working, but if the Russians are close, I will fight them. For now, residents are left to clean up the bloody aftermath and brace for the next attack. And Jake, five people killed. City officials said late today that the fifth person uh, that was declared dead died because they had picked up an unexploded munition. So they're sending warnings to everybody not to touch the debris that lands in these cities. And Jake, these attacks today were occurred scattered all over the city, totally random in nature, all in civilian areas. Jake? Ed Levandera, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, just a few hours ago, I spoke with Vladimir Klitschko. He's a former professional boxer, as is his brother Vitaly, who is, of course, the mayor of Kiev. Vladimir joined Ukraine's defense forces after the war started. They've sworn that Ukraine will never go to the knee. They will never give up. The Klitschkos are on the move 24-7, visiting residential areas now abandoned after the Russian army withdrew. When I spoke with Vladimir a little bit ago, I asked him if he expects the Russians will return. We do expect that the Russians are going to be back, and we are preparing for that. And past uh, 51 days, it's been shown that um, they might use anything possible to come back. So we need to be prepared for everything. Today, Russia claims it hit a military facility outside uh, Kiev with a cruise missile. Do you know anything about the attack? What? what the facility was? I, no, I don't know the details in particular, but uh, past night I could hear like three explosions in the south of the city. And um, yeah, I cannot ha- say more what exactly was hit and uh, what the damage is. I, um, I met your brother earlier today and he was talking about what it's like talking to Russian friends of his back in Russia. Uh, he said they're like zombies. They don't believe the facts and the truth of what you're experiencing. Have, have you experienced that too? Absolutely pretty much the same picture, so to speak, of the people that been brainwashed. And I believe that it's just poisoning that um, affects your brain, basically. Your understanding of life, what is good, what is bad. And uh, in my opinion, what is happening here in Ukraine, it's just uh, the fight between the evil that came from the Russian side and the good, because we are the good, and good is always going to win in the end. Later in the show, we're going to be talking to somebody named Clint Williamson, who is a war crimes investigator. Is there anything you'd want to ask him? I, I wish that um, every crime must be investigated. Behind every crime, every killing, and I've seen personally many, many, many dead bodies of the civilians. Either they were 
captured in a car and flattened with the tanks or they were on their knees, shot in the head with hands tied behind their back and so on. And there is behind every crime, first name and last name. And that must be investigated as well as an order who've made this order to go and kill, go and torture, go and rape. This genocide, and that's what is happening actually, genocide of the Ukrainian population, that's what is occurring nowadays in Ukraine, has been done multiple times in different places for 51 days. How long can we wait for this justice? And consequences, I cannot forget these lines of the world leaders saying, if the Russian troops are going to cross the line and invade Ukraine, there are going to be severe consequences. These severe consequences for 51 days has been taking Ukrainian population. With all the li- lives they've been taking and infrastructure gets, was destroyed, it's just something that the world cannot passively observe while it's still going. Yeah. And I believe that the world leaders and everyone else should ask themselves how long can i passively observe it where are the consequences severe consequences that we've been taking and suffering and still fighting back and standing strong and i just want to call all the world free world to support us as long as this war is going support us we need this we're defending your principles, democratic principles as well. We're doing the job. And you know what? We've been asking you for help. And trust me, when this war is over, you're going to get it back multiple times. We are creative. We are good, innovative. We're just well-educated population that definitely going to give back to the world. And we're defending your principles, as I said, here as well. Lottie Klitschko, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Thank you. The U.S. says now with more confidence that sinking of Russia's flagship in the Black Sea was indeed the result of two Ukrainian Neptune missiles. How much of a blow might this be to Russia's capabilities? Stay with us. Staying in our world lead, it's not as though Russia needs... Any justification to bombard Ukraine, but Ukraine says Russia is now seeking revenge for the sinking of the Moskva. That's, of course, the flagship of its Black Sea, Black sea fleet, which now sits at the bottom of the sea. Russian forces claim uh, they've struck a military facility now on the outskirts of Kiev, where I am. This, as we learn, Russia is warning the United States about ongoing shipments of U.S. weapons to Ukraine. Let's discuss with CNN military analyst, retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, as well as CNN national security correspondent Kylie uh, Atwood. Uh, General Hurtling, let me start with you. The U.S. assesses that two Ukrainian Neptune missiles, which are land to sea, struck the Moskva. Its sinking is the biggest maritime loss of a naval ship in, in 40 years, some say, although there's questions about an Argentinian ship during the Falklands. But put that aside for now. How important from a strategic and morale standpoint, is this sinking? Yeah, I'm going to start off by saying a lot is still not known about the tactics and the manner of the attack. It certainly probably included Neptune missiles, but I would suggest there were a lot of other things, uh, tactics and, and maneuvers involved by the Ukrainian army. 
But having said that, uh, I would suggest we will find there's some there's some real tactical brilliance that was behind this attack. Is it strategically important? Well, what I'd say is operationally and tactically, the Russians will now have an extremely difficult time conducting any kind of amphibious operation on the Black Sea coast without this flagship, which was part of, or which is now part of their new plan. Uh, you know, the other thing is this ship was supposed to be providing command and control and air defense for the entire Black Sea fleet. Beyond that, though, one more thing, yeah. this, this ship specifically is a big deal because this was the C-2 ship, the command and control ship that was involved in the attack into Georgia in 2008. And the fact that it's named after the, the capital is a pretty big deal. But, you know, the last thing I'd say, Jake, we can't take this as a singular event. You know, this naval loss goes along with the destruction of the Russian Parachute Regiment, the so-called VDV, the first week of the war, seven generals being killed, 20,000 Russians that have been killed in action, the destruction of 700 tanks and other equipment across the, the board, uh, the, the cross-border operation by Ukraine into Belgrade. All of these things are contributing, I think, to some real strategic failure on the part of Russia's military and their political masters to plan this operation. Kylie, Russia sent a diplomatic note to the U.S. State Department warning the U.S. to stop arming Ukraine or risk, quote, unpredictable consequences. How is the Biden administration responding to that? Yeah, well, listen, State Department spokesperson Ned Price said that the Russians have said things in public, they have said things in private, but nothing is going to dissuade the Biden administration from the strategy they are pursuing here, from continuing to give Ukraine this military support. And the timeline here underscores or sort of gives some credibility to him saying that because this diplomatic note from the Russians warning the United States not to give Ukraine more military assistance came on Tuesday. President Biden announced $800 million in additional security assistance weaponry to Ukraine the next day on Wednesday, indicating that they still move forward with this despite this warning call. And when it comes to what Biden administration officials believe this message signals about where Russia stands right now, they believe that it shows that Russia is not on solid ground right now, that U.S. support for Ukraine has been effective. General Hurling, the latest U.S. military aid to Ukraine includes more sophisticated and heavier duty weaponry than previous shipments. Will it be enough to hold off the Russian offensive in eastern Ukraine, given how much bigger and, and more expensive uh, the Russian military is? Yeah, I, I think it's going to be very important, Jake, the things that the Ukrainians are getting. We're changing the approach, the tactical approach to combat right now. The Ukraines conducted an active defense north of Kiev. In this fight, they're going to have to go more on the counterattack mode as Russia moves around the Donbass region. So the ability to move and be mobile and provide firepower, all those things, preventing artillery attacks with the radars that they've given, uh, that we've given Ukraine, as well as all the other NATO members who have given uh, elements to the Ukrainian army, are all going to be important. Uh, the interesting piece is what has to happen next is the resupply of these kind of rounds and equipment has to continue to come. Uh, it's important to get the first tranche across, but the, the, the next group is also going to be important. Kylie Atwood, General Hurtling, good to see both of you. Thank you so much. Truckloads of medical supplies for fighters in Ukraine. How the extensive operation works to get those shipments overseas. Next.
In our world, Lee, the UN estimates more than 4.7 million Ukrainians, 4.7 million, have been forced to flee this country since the start of Putin's brutal invasion 51 days ago. We've also seen the images of displaced Ukrainians in desperate need of aid. Our next guest runs an organization that is helping them and works to send supplies wherever they're needed. Joining me now is Dora Komiak, president of Razum for Ukraine. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, Dora. Your organization, Razum, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that you correctly, are. but it, I'm told it means together. Mm-hmm. I, I'm told it means together in Ukrainian. It's been able to send urgently needed medical supplies to Ukrainians, including more than 115,000 tourniquets, uh, one of the most requested items across the country. Talk about how you've been able to do this and get them where they're needed most. We, it's, the, the answer is Ukrainians, Ukrainian people. Uh, Razum came together in 2014. We're a network of individuals and organizations, and we're focused on building a prosperous Ukraine. So as I'm sure your experience as you're you're experiencing as you're traveling around Ukraine, Ukraine is full of dynamic, driven, innovative, motivated people who have been building this democracy for the past three decades, if not more. And it's all that innovation and drive that's making it possible for us to do so much so quickly. Everyone's in it. One of the things that's been remarkable, absolutely, is all the volunteers that we've met and covered and talked to who are out there trying to help evacuations of people who are hurt to, the, to, to get them to Lviv or whatever. And they're all volunteers, and none of them were doing this until the invasion. Um, so what you're saying totally squares with the people we're meeting. Razum's also helping with the evacuation of Ukrainian children with disabilities. How's that process going? What are some of the challenges you're facing there? Uh, the challenges are the challenges that I think everyone in Ukraine is facing, which you are too, shells falling from the sky and, and disrupting your ability to live. Um, but it, we, it has been very difficult, but we have been able to get um, hundreds of people into safety. Uh, we were able to do that through a network we already had going with SMA, uh, SMA kids. So we're able to send supplies in small vans in one direction and bring families into safety in the other direction. And it's an all-hands-on-deck kind of situation. Everyone is involved in defending this country's existence. These are incredibly difficult circumstances uh, in Ukraine, as I don't need to tell you. The, the needs in this country, especially in parts of the country like the South and the East, they're constantly changing. How have you had to adapt during the course of the war as, things on the, as, as conditions on the ground have changed? And, and what is still needed? Things, conditions change from hour to hour. So we can have one route planned in the morning and then we need to change the, change the whole plan for the day in the afternoon. And that's where this mesh network of volunteers and organizations makes it so important to be, sort of have the same core goals and objectives and then be able to adapt on the fly. People need, the most thing, the the thing that people need is something we're not able to provide and that's defense support against uh, against these shells that are falling from the sky. Once the shells hit, we really need to stop the bleeding. And that's where the tourniquets and the blood clotters come into play, mobile hospitals, and communications equipment to help get those things into the right hands as quickly as possible. Those are the top needs we're seeing. So you're of Ukrainian descent. Yes. How has this war impacted members of your family as well as uh, co-workers uh, there or here in Ukraine? It makes a video Staff meeting calls, uh, somewhat complicated. Um, We're working side by side, my colleagues, my family members. Um, But everyone's in it. Everyone's got the same motivation. Everyone wants to see this country succeed as a democracy. And so everyone's doing everything we can 
to, to make it work. Um, and it has not been easy, but I'm incredibly proud and motivated by people in Ukraine who do what needs to be done. And, you know, it is, it's, this is a repeat of the movie my, my parents lived through. My parents were displaced persons. My grandfather fought the same battle against invaders from Moscow. So now what we've got is the involvement and the attention of the global community. And it, it, it's, it gives me a lot of hope that um, the world will be able to become a better place by learning from Ukraine. Dora, you may not know this, but I have the greatest, most generous viewers in TV news history. Where should they go if they want to contribute to what you do? If people want to come on board, I encourage everyone to go to razomforukraine.org. That's R-A-Z-O-M-F-O-R-Ukraine.org. Please make sure you go to that URL. Um, we have been attacked by uh, scammers who are creating fake sites. So please, razumforukraine.org, online, on Instagram, yeah. and on Facebook. I'll, I'll tweet it out also so thank people you. know if yep, they're not sure. Just, just wait for my social media post. Dora, thank you so thank much. Thank you appreciate very it. much. Appreciate the work you do. Still ahead, another CNN exclusive, the two Republican lawmakers who went from defending Trump to warning they were, quote, driving a stake in the heart of the republic, the Trump people, by pursuing the false election claims. Stay with us. Turning to our politics lead, a CNN exclusive revealing text messages between two of former President Trump's most vocal supporters in Congress and then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. CNN's Ryan Nobles uncovers how they were pushing for evidence to advance the cause of overturning the 2020 election. But when the insurrection started, their tone seemed to have abruptly changed. Senator Mike Lee of Utah and Congressman Chip Roy of Texas, two of former President Donald Trump's most loyal defenders in Congress. But in dozens of private texts to Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, a picture emerges of how both went from aiding the effort to challenge the election results to ultimately warning against it. The texts obtained by CNN show how they were trying to help initially, but by the end, raised concerns to Trump's top deputy about his campaign's effort to stand in the way of the certification of the 2020 election. We're driving a stake in the heart of the federal republic, Roy warned Meadows in a text message on January 1st that is in possession of the January 6th Select Committee. All my friends here in the historic warning came after weeks of begging Meadows for hard evidence of election fraud and concerns that the lack of specific evidence was a real problem for the Trump legal team. We must urge the president to tone down the rhetoric, he wrote to Meadows on November 9th. Why is the attorney general Roy did believe that there were problems with the election. In early December, he went to the House floor, imploring his colleagues to look into the thin examples of fraud. The American people are raising legitimate questions about our elections, and this body is missing in action and doing nothing. Like Roy, Senator Mike Lee started out hopeful that there was a path to challenge the election results. In early November, he touted the work of conservative lawyer Sidney Powell, encouraging Meadows to get her an audience with the president, calling her a, quote, straight shooter. But less than two weeks later, Powell appeared with Rudy Giuliani in what would become an infamous press conference where the duo made wild, baseless claims about the election. President Trump won by a landslide. We are going to prove it. Lee then changed his tune, calling Powell a liability and turning his focus to touting attorney John Eastman. 
Lee pushed a plan to convince state legislatures to offer up a set of alternate electors. When that plan fizzled, Lee decided he was no longer on board. He texted Meadows on December 16th, quote, I think we're now past the point where we can expect anyone will do it without some direction and a strong evidentiary argument. Both Lee and Roy ultimately chose not to join other Republicans to vote against certifying the election. Our job is to open and then count. Open, then count. That's it. That's all there is. Privately, they were even more emphatic about the fool's errand Trump's team was on. The president should call everyone off. It's the only path, Roy texted Meadows on December 31st. While Lee argued the effort was on dangerous constitutional ground. Three days before January 6th, he warned, I know only that this will end badly for the president unless we have the Constitution on our side. They did not, but the Trump team and a group of loyal Republicans went ahead with their plan anyway. As it became clear their effort would not be successful, hundreds of Trump supporters stormed the Capitol in protest. As the violence was raging, Roy texted Meadows, fix this now. As the gentleman from Texas. He then went to the House floor and placed the blame squarely at President Trump's feet. And the president should never have spun up certain Americans to believe something that simply cannot be. And neither of these congressional offices have questioned the authenticity of these text messages. Senator Lee's office told us that he was transparent during that period of time and nothing contradicts his public statements. Meanwhile, Congressman Chip Roy has just responded in the last hour to our report. He tweeted that, quote, that he'll only say this once. He has no apologies for his private texts or public positions to those on the left or the right. Jake, of course, these text messages are going to be a big part of the January 6th investigation as they move closer to issuing a final report this fall. Jake. Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill for us. Thank you so much. Despite some of the worst scenes of the war, how some Ukrainians are finding a way to mark one of the most sacred times of the year. Stay with us. This is CNN Breaking News. And welcome back to this special broadcast of The Lead live from Ukraine. I'm Jake Tapper looking out on the capital of Kyiv where the clock just struck midnight on day 51, I guess 52 now here in Ukraine, of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. We begin this hour with another attack on innocent civilians in a residential building in Ukraine. A prosecutor in Kharkiv says Russian shelling killed 10 people, including a seven-month-old child. Another 35 Ukrainians were injured. This is just the latest example of a seemingly endless string of attacks on innocent Ukrainian civilians with those left behind trying to cope with immeasurable loss, such as this young child in Bucha offering food to his mother's grave as his younger brother and neighbor stand nearby. Or this young couple, Marina Yatsko and her boyfriend Fedor, rushing to the hospital after her 18-month-old son was killed by shelling in Mariupol. Their grief is, is palpable through the photographs, mourning the loss of a life that had only barely begun. Of course, we know this will not be the end of the grief here in Ukraine. Earlier today, I asked Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, about the emotional toll this has all taken on Ukrainians and on him. We'll get to more of that interview in just a moment. But Ukrainian officials are clear. Russia is now seeking revenge after Moscow's key warship, the Moskva, sank. A U.S. official confirmed two Ukrainian Neptune missiles hit the vessel earlier this week. Now the Kremlin is claiming 
Russian forces hit a military facility on the outskirts of Kyiv, where I'm standing, one that produces anti-aircraft and anti-ship missiles. It's a move seen by Ukrainians as retaliation for what happened to the Moskva. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the country, heavy shelling was reportedly heard in Donetsk, Luhansk, and Kharkiv. And a senior U.S. defense official says Mariupol is in a, quote, dire position. The U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is also telling European allies he thinks this war might last the rest of the year. CNN's Phil Black is here for us and back from a trip to the ravaged town of Bucha that you've heard so much about, just 20 miles northeast of Kiev. And, and Phil, Ukraine's national police say more than 900 bodies, 900 of uh, civilians, we should note. Not, not soldiers, civilians have been discovered in the Kyiv region since Russia withdrew its army uh, two weeks ago. What, what did you see in Bucha? Well, Jake, the images from Bucha shocked the world because of what they showed on the surface, the many bodies just lying where people fell. But the reality is that most people who died during Rus Russia's occupation there were buried during Russia's occupation there, either in a large central site or small, shallow graves, wherever people thought they could safely dig them. And there is a large, ongoing effort to ensure each and every person is recovered and accounted for. The warning, this report has some disturbing images. The operation to recover and investigate Butcher's dead is now industrial in its scale. Teams of people are working to empty the town's mass grave and many smaller ones. The victims of Russia's occupation are being retrieved from the earth. There are so many bodies, rarely do those doing the digging know the stories of how each person lived and died. Here, two men are being exhumed from the grounds of a small church. The priest who oversaw their first burial didn't know them. He says he thinks one was a scientist, the other a school bus driver. He thinks they were shot and killed in the street. Among the now notorious images from Bucha's road of death, Yablanska Street, was this man lying beneath his bike. His name was Vladimir Borovchenko. Svetlana is his widow. She says she told her husband, don't go, they're shooting. The tanks are already on Yablanska Street. But he insisted on leaving the house. She says the 68-year-old grandfather was killed as soon as he reached the road. His bike is still there. This building stands near Bucha, in the village of Vozel. Among those killed here were Yulia's parents, Natalia and Victor Mazoha. She says her mother was helping a young injured woman who'd been discarded by a Russian soldier when more soldiers suddenly entered their home. She says they came in, shot the woman, shot my mother, and then my father ran out when he heard something was wrong, and they shot him. The young woman was Karina Yershova. She was 23 years old. Karina's mother says police told her her daughter was raped before she was shot. It's more than two weeks since the Russians withdrew and the operation to account for all the bodies they left behind isn't finished. Mourning each victim, remembering how they lived, understanding why they died, will take much longer. Jake, there are so many bodies that are 
unclaimed, unidentified. There is an online social media database that people can search through with details of the bodies and images, images that can't hide how these people were brutalized, how they suffered in the moment they died or clearly in the moments before they died as well. It is harrowing to scroll through. And it is a, another way in which Russia's occupation of these areas is continuing to afflict pain and trauma weeks after that occupation ended. Bill Black, thank you. You honor these victims by telling their stories. Thank you so much for that. For Ukrainians left behind, civilians are left both alarmed and numb by the destruction in, in their country. I asked Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky about this earlier today. Take a listen. I, I'm sure you have seen the video of the Ukrainian mom finding her son in a yeah. well and her sorrow, her crying, just is devastating to hear. <laughs> and you have seen a lot of videos like that. What is it like for you as the president of this country to see those videos, to hear the crying of the moms? This is the scariest I have seen in my life in principle. I look at this first of all as a father. It hurts so, so much. It's a tragedy. It's suffering. I won't be able to imagine the scale of suffering of these people, of this woman. It is a family's tragedy. It's a disaster. It's the dreams and the life you've just lost. We live for our kids. That's true. Kids are the best we were given by God and by family. It is a great pain for me. I can't watch it as a father. Only because all you want after this is revenge and to kill. I have to watch as the president of the state where a lot of people have died and lost their loved ones. And there are millions of people who want to live. All of us want to fight. But we all have to do our best for this war not to be endless. The longer it is, the more we would lose. All these losses will be just like that one. I want to bring in Sviatoslav Yurash at 26 years old. He's Ukraine's youngest member of parliament. He's been one of the many young Ukrainians fighting for Ukraine on the street. Uh, Sviatoslav, we spoke last week and you told me that the horrific images from Bucha we're only going to be the beginning, and soon the world would see more horror in Ukraine as more cities become liberated. Um, tell us what you're seeing and how it's been for you emotionally. The reality of the surroundings of Kiev is unbelievable. The images of all the cities that your correspondents saw is uh, just the starting point. I mean, there is the issue of the, the drama, the horror of Borodyanka. It's a city in the, to the north of Kiev, to the far north of Kiev. And there, there was no military base. There was uh, no military unit station. There was no airfield. There was no battle. And the Russian airplanes hit civilian residential buildings that essentially are now rubble and there are people underneath that rubble that are discovered daily and that is just the key region. Russians have also been defeated in other regions of northern Ukraine and the cities uh, are being uncovered. My colleagues MPs who are going there telling us the horrifying stories from there but it's just the places that have been liberated. We have many more battles to do in the Kharkiv region, in Donbass, 
in the south of Ukraine. And believe me, uh, what Russians have shown there is manifested there tenfold because they keep occupying those cities and destroying people there. You've been uh, with soldiers fighting side by side, other Ukrainians defending your country. What can you tell us about the Ukrainians uh, you're fighting alongside? The determination that we felt at the start to showcase to the world that the Russians that we want our independence, integrity and freedom is just the starting point. And now it is about making all that sacrifice and all these people that have given their lives for our chance of the future uh, to make that sacrifice uh, worth it and to try and justify all that has been given to them and to exact uh, justice to those who have made intolerable suffering on this nation. Russian forces have largely left this area that I'm in, Kyiv. Uh, they're now seemingly focused on the east, like Kharkiv, and the south at Donbass. Are Ukrainians in those areas prepared for what's about to happen? They have been fighting for all this time. It's not as if Russians were attacking north of Ukraine and Kiev to begin with, and now we'll start attacking the east. Russians were hoping to blitz both through the south, the east, and the north of the country. They've been unable to do so. And the point is them uh, being defeated here near Kiev is just a prelude for a full battle in the east, which has been raging all along and now will rage with more intensity, but we have given Russians pause in the last month and a half. Now we'll be giving them another defeat in the East. Sviatoslav, we've talked about this before, but this is incredibly personal for you. Uh, you're a member of parliament, you're fighting, this is your country, you've had friends die, including, we should note, journalist uh, Alexandra uh, Kavshanova, who was killed by Russian shelling mid-March. She was working uh, for Fox. Uh, how has this war changed you, do you think? She was so much more than a friend in the decade that we knew each other in every single way. Uh, as far as my changes, they are very clear uh, because our determination now is to basically win. Our struggle now is not just to try and beat back the Russians, but to showcase to the Russians that they cannot dictate our future. And we must put everything on the line here now, not just in terms of voting special laws or having special seminars or conferences, but having and getting those skills that are needed to defend every inch of this country and be useful in every way for the battle for this country's future. That's why I and countless other colleagues have been mobilized into the Ukrainian armed forces and will be fighting for the future of this country. Sviatoslav Yorosh, thank you so much. Good to see you again, my friend. We've seen the pictures from Bucha. We've heard the stories of rape and murder and destruction. What's next in the international investigation into Russian war crimes? Well, we'll ask somebody directly involved coming up. Plus, are we closer to no more nose swabs after more than two years into the COVID pandemic? Now a new way to test for COVID. That's ahead. And we're back with our world lead. All signs point to Russia still preparing to launch an all-out assault in eastern and southern Ukraine, although cities and sounds along the front lines have been enduring relentless shelling for days and weeks now. CNN's Ben Wiedemann spent the last three days along those front lines. He joins us now from Kramatorsk. Um, ben, you've been hearing air raid sirens and distant shelling for much of the day. 
Not distant shelling, actually. We heard a very large explosion earlier today. It appears to have been perhaps a cruise missile strike on an industrial state in the city, Kramatorsk. And, uh, and yes, we've been hearing the air raid sirens go off after that happened. Uh, and just a few moments ago, before we came to you, we were hearing more distant shelling, which is something that you hear much of the time in this town. Uh, when you get closer to the front line, it's not distant. It is often very nearby, perilously so, uh, sometimes. And what we've seen is that, uh, the the intensity of the shelling particularly on those in those communities close to russian front lines is intensifying now yesterday we were in the town of severodonetsk and uh, basically just to the north really just a suburb of that city is controlled by russian forces and we were told that russian artillery russian armor and russian troops are building up uh, in that, this town, that town. And what we're seeing here, for instance, in Kramatorsk is fewer people. There were very few people when we arrived last Friday in the aftermath of uh, that uh, attack on the train station. Now there are fewer still. Now regarding that train station attack, which uh, was a horrific event where you had 4,000 people waiting out on a platform for trains to evacuate them out when a missile exploded overhead. It's believed that perhaps it was a cluster munition and uh, the death toll has now risen to 59 for that incident, Jake. Yeah, they just added uh, two kids to that grim list. Um, you have spent, uh, you and your team, three very long days along the front lines. You've, you've seen firsthand how heavily shelled these towns and cities are. Tell us about how difficult life is for those who stayed behind. It's incredibly difficult. I mean, really what I saw with all the people I uh, spoke to, it can only be described as post-traumatic stress disorder. People are they're at, at their wits end. And it's important to point out, many of these people who are staying behind are staying behind not necessarily because they're stubborn, it's because they don't have the means to leave. There, Many of them are very poor. Uh, they simply don't have the cash to sustain themselves in any way once they get out of here. So they are forced to stay behind. And there's a fairly decent system of distribution run by the municipality and a lot of volunteers, and they do their best. But because of the shelling, sometimes supplies don't get through. And today, uh, shelling hit one of the water mains, and so much of the town is without water. Electricity, it comes and goes. It's very unreliable. And we went to the hospital. The hospital there, I, we spoke to the director, 90% of the staff has left uh, for reasons of safety and other. And so they don't have enough people to manage the morgue. So the morgue is full of more than 20 bodies uh, simply strewn around, covered with blankets and sheets and they're barely able to cope with the situation at the moment. And that sort of best describes the situation of these communities on the front lines. Jake? Ben Wiedemann, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now is Clint Williamson, who served as U.S. Ambassador at Large for War Crimes Issues from June 2006 to September 2009. So you're heading up a joint U.S.-European Union effort 
to assist the Ukrainian prosecutor general here in her office's investigations of war crimes. You've been going back and forth between the U.S. and Ukraine. Um, Tell us more about that and how that's going to work. Well, um, as you said, it's a joint effort uh, with a number of international partners, the U.S., the EU, U.K., and Canada. Um, And we are trying to provide expertise to the prosecutor general's office at a high level derived from years of experience in the international criminal tribunals where cases of of this type have been dealt with previously. Uh, Additionally, we're trying to provide support with their ground level investigations, helping them to make sure that evidence is collected in the right fashion and can be used effectively in any subsequent prosecutions. Based on all of CNN's reporting on the ground here in Ukraine, it seems just factual and obvious that war crimes did take place committed by Russians. Uh, What's next in the investigation? Well, I I think you're right. I mean, what we've seen from the very early days of the current invasion is that war crimes were occurring. Um, And I think with these discoveries in in Bucha, in Erpin, in Mariupol, Uh, there's very compelling evidence of crimes against humanity having occurred. So the process now is on trying to put together the evidence that substantiates those crimes that can be used in a judicial proceeding and uh, and trying to build these cases, trying to determine who the perpetrators are and take that up the chain of command so that those in senior political and military uh, leadership positions are held accountable. Your team toward Bucha, though, you personally didn't. What, what did they find and what did those findings mean for this international investigation? Yeah, I mean, I think what everyone is seeing is, is consistent with your reporting, which has uh, has detailed this, um, you know, in a, in a very graphic and compelling fashion. Um, in the Kareem Khan, the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, described the whole area around Kiev as one massive crime scene. And I think that's correct. Uh, I mean, we're, we're very troubled by what we're going to see in, in other areas as, as the Russians pull out. But, but clearly the types of things that have been discovered, seeing people that have, have been executed, that have ligatures on, on their arms, that are blindfolded, bearing signs of torture, bearing signs of, of rape and, and other sexual assaults, I mean, all of these are clearly war crimes. And so it's now a matter of of putting all of this together, trying to do these linkages with with commanders and identifying those who should be held accountable. Just a few days ago, President Biden called what Putin and the Russians are doing in Ukraine genocide for the first time. He clarified this was his opinion. It wasn't a legal ruling. It wasn't the State Department concluding this. Does that affect at all what you're doing? Does that uh, drive it or impact it in any way? Not really at, at this point. In the, um, as I said, I, I think there are very clear indications of war crimes and crimes against humanity. There are some additional elements involved in, in genocide, and, and really it boils down to an int- intent to uh, destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, religious, or, or racial group. Um, and when you go back and you look at some of the statements that, that have been made by President Putin himself, it 
sends pretty strong signals of, of that intent. But I, I agree with President Biden's uh, sort of conclusion that it still requires more analysis. And, and, and clearly that's something that will be going on. So I don't think people have reached a, a legal conclusion on that yet, uh, but they'll be looking very carefully at it. Ambassador Clint Williamson, thanks so much for your time tonight. We really appreciate it. Coming up, a holiday meant to celebrate freedom. Join me on a visit with Ukrainians' Jewish community preparing for Passover in the midst of a war. Stay with us. Staying in our world lead, Jerusalem is on edge as violence erupted there in a rare convergence of Ramadan, Passover, and Easter weekend. Uh, Palestinian and Israeli security forces clashed today around the entrance to the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, a site known to Jews as the Temple Mount and is sacred to both religions. Palestinians threw stones at Israeli police who responded by firing stun grenades and rubber bullets. More than 150 people have been hospitalized with injuries as a result of the unrest. This confrontation comes amid weeks of escalating tensions and violence that have killed 14 people in Israel and left several Palestinians dead. In our faith lead today... A show of solidarity during a Good Friday evening procession led by Pope Francis. Two women, one Russian and one Ukrainian, carried a cross together during the Vatican's annual Way of the Cross tribute, a gesture which has drawn criticism from some Ukrainian Catholics who do not feel that unity with Russia right now, to say the least. Back here in Kiev, this year the Passover story is especially meaningful for Ukrainian Jews forced to flee their homes and witness their country being wrecked by war. I joined with some of them for Passover Seder preparations earlier today as they cope with the brutality of Putin's invasion on a holiday that is supposed to celebrate freedom. Passover commemorates the Jewish exodus from slavery in Egypt and honors tenacity during hardship. Hardship here is easy to find. And so is tenacity. Ukraine is home to one of the largest Jewish communities in the world, but it's a complicated history, including pogroms, ghettos, and work camps in World War II. This is all that remains of a synagogue that was bombed by the Nazis in 1942, a memorial now in its place. But just over the wall, Melach Shechet is unboxing newly donated matzah amid a wartime shortage. But we get this, we cry of happiness and lighting candles for a dozen expected Seder guests. Every year when we celebrate Passover, we celebrate like we now get out of slavery. Not as happened two and a half thousand years ago, it's happening now. Insanely, Russia has been trying to justify this war by pushing the false claim that Ukraine is a Nazi stronghold. Dictators always use Jews as a stick to get their interests done. We would never allow him to use us as a stick against any people, including Ukrainians. At every Seder, Jews say, let all who are hungry come and eat. And at this synagogue in Kyiv, they're taking that literally. We have been providing food packages, water, non-perishable items, medicine, evacuations, trying to celebrate freedom while there's so much terror going on around us, is very, very difficult. Still, the consistency of tradition is all the more crucial when it's hard to uphold. 
Last night, Russians were shelling nearby. Tonight, Rabbi Raphael Rutman invites me in and asks me to put on tefillin or the phylacteries containing parchment inscribed with verses from the Torah. This is a little bit defiant that I'm doing this because there are people who try to get rid of our people in this part of the country, in fact, uh, in this part of the world, and in fact, there still are some people like that, right? This is a way of showing defiance. This is a way of showing that the Jewish people live on no matter how many years pass by, the Jewish people are alive and well, and we're proving it by praying. Hear that? Hear that, Nazis? We're still here. <laughs> Rabbi Rutman is proud of the Jewish president of his country, Shalom. but seems just as proud to live in a town where the Christian mayor visits to pay his respects. I received an invitation. I can't say no. Inside, before sundown, Rutman shows me the Seder table and answers the traditional question, why is tonight different from all other nights? There are many things about this night that's different. People who are coming to spend the holiday will be spending it under curfew and arrangements had to be made for that. So there are a lot of, a lot of things very different about this, this night. As we get closer to sunset back in Lviv, Vladislav Kovalov is busy preparing for tonight's Seder at the shelter he's been staying at for a month. His family refused to leave northeastern Ukraine amid attacks. But as a military-age man, he is not allowed to leave Ukraine. Passover is a typically family holiday, and normally I would be with my family. Now I have another family here. It's a very big family that we welcome everyone to. The meal will be a welcome bit of familiarity for the family staying in the office building turned refuge. From table to table to table, those lucky enough to celebrate Passover in relative peace will pray the families of their fellow Ukrainians will be passed over as the Russians continue their bloody, destructive invasion. Passover is Passover. It's about freedom, and we cannot give up. And the good always has to outweigh the evil and the bad, and it will. To those who celebrate, happy Passover. We'll be, we'll be right back. In the health lead, a new first in the pandemic front after two plus years of those uncomfortable swabs being shoved up your nose. The FDA has now authorized the first breath test that can detect the COVID-19 virus. Let me bring in CNN's Jacqueline Howard. Jacqueline, how effective is this new breath test? Jake, the accuracy here does look comparable to the rapid antigen test that we already use, like the at-home test. So here's what we know. According to one study that included more than 2,400 people, the breath test showed 91% sensitivity. So that's the percent of positive samples the test correctly identified. And then 99% specificity. That's the percent of negative samples the test correctly identified. So this is comparable to the rapid antigen test here, Jake. But if you test positive with the breath test, just like if you test positive with a rapid antigen test, you still need to get that nasal swab PCR test to confirm the positive test results. Now, the breath test also is shown to turn results under three minutes, Jake. And I also want to say the way it works, it detects a chemical compound associated with COVID-19 in breath samples. So that's the technology there, Jake. That's what we know. So, but to be clear, despite the strong findings, this new breathalyzer from 
inspect IR does not completely replace the nose swab tests. That's right. This is not a replacement. It's more like having just another tool, right, in our testing toolkit. Another key difference here, Jake, this test is authorized for use in doctor's offices, hospitals, at mobile testing sites, but not authorized for use at home. So if you want an at-home test, those are still what's already available, which are the nasal swab options. Do we have any idea how long it will be before a breath test is available for at-home use? Right. That's the question everyone has. Right, Jake. But if that is a possibility, that would be far out in the future. We did reach out to the company here. We have to see where the technology takes us. But right now, the company said that the at home or excuse me, the breath test used in doctor's offices that was just authorized. It's not even available yet. They will announce a launch date. They will announce cost. But what they plan to do, they plan to produce about 100 of these instruments per Week And depending on how much these instruments cost, that will tell us how many doctor's offices will be able to use them. But when it comes to seeing this technology at home, I guess we just have to see where the science takes us in the future. Jake? All right, Jacqueline Howard, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Meanwhile, a COVID crisis in China with more than 95 percent of all cases in that country reported in Shanghai. More than 23,000 cases yesterday alone in this third most populated city in the world. Shanghai has been on a full lockdown. For more than two weeks, as the Chinese government tries to get a hold on this outbreak, CNN's David Culver is in Shanghai, and he's among the 26 million people on lockdown. Uh, David, I hope you're doing okay. The confinement is causing some wild scenes. It really is, Jake. I mean, this Omicron-fueled surge here in Shanghai has got public health officials uh, within this country scrambling to try to build these makeshift quarantine facilities and keep most of the 25 million people living here in lockdown, including us, as you point out. And then there are videos now circulating on social media showing people confronting police. I'll pause here. You can take a look at this one. All right, and you can see in this video, these are residents that are being forced from their homes. They're they're residential compounds. And these compounds are then turned into government-designated quarantine facilities. The video is showing police detaining residents for protesting. One of the residents told us that all of those who were taken into custody by police, yeah, they were later released, but uh, the owner of the compounds confirmed the government took over nine apartment buildings so as to make the quarantine centers. The Shanghai government... They referred us to the property owner statement. They declined to comment further. But this is all part of Beijing's zero COVID policy, right? They require positive cases and close contacts to be isolated from the rest of the public. So this is one of the ways, Jake, that they're having to make space in this city of more than 25 million people. Tesla is among the companies pushing to reopen and restart business. But is the Shanghai government open to loosening yeah. any restrictions? It doesn't look like it from that really disturbing video. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Out of all the industries that you would think, you know, perhaps would convince this government, uh, even convince Beijing to reassess this zero COVID approach, perhaps it would be the finance industry and the businesses impacted. And and they're certainly voicing their concerns. Tesla's got a gigafactory here that's now shut down pretty much indefinitely. Disney's got a very profitable theme park here that likewise 
has no plans to open in the near future, at least has not set a date. Volkswagen, likewise. I mean, this is this is a huge issue for what is the most international city in this country and what has been seen as the window to the West. And if you look at where some of these other outbreaks are happening beyond Shanghai as well, they're also along the coast of China. So you're talking about major ports, not only here in Shanghai, but in other cities being impacted. That in turn is affecting shipping, which continues then to put a strain on global supply chains. And so if you thought that the economics of all of this and the fact that a massive metropolis like Shanghai is virtually now shut down and that all the finances that are generally generated from this city would impact or influence Beijing and their decision making in this. Think again, Jake. Yeah. David Culver in Shanghai. Thank you. Hang in there, buddy. A world at the extremes, how the climate crisis is set to fuel more flooding this hurricane season. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series today, a troubling trend set as we get closer to the beginning of hurricane season in the United States. In June, scientists blame the climate crisis for a supercharge of rainfall in the 2020 hurricane season, as much as 11% higher than in previous years. Seen as Bill Weir in Vero Beach along Florida's eastern coast joins us. Bill, what's so troubling about this report, as you, as you know, is that scientists warn all that rain in past hurricane seasons, it's only going to get worse, which means more flooding during these storms. Yes, exactly, Jake. And it's hard to believe it's been about almost 17 years since Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. We were young reporters back at ABC as the first big storm I covered then. But it's staggering to realize that as devastating as that was the seemingly the storm of the century, it would be much worse today. Uh, and what we're getting now through these new studies is just more data that confirms the basic laws of physics, which is a hotter, warmer atmosphere holds more water and moisture. That means bigger rain bomb events. And, you know, heat and water are the engines of hurricanes, the food, the fuel. And so more of the, all both of those will make what would be average category twos or threes into big monster four and fives. There's very little science on whether it will increase the number uh, of hurricanes, but having worse bad ones is going to be expensive and, and tough enough, Jake. And as you note, Bill, we saw more evidence of catastrophic flooding just this week when a storm dumped several months worth of rain in 24 hours in South Africa. Yeah, this is down on the eastern coast of South Africa near Durban there. They had four times the monthly average for April in 24 hours of rain uh, and over 300 lives lost uh, there so far. But that's just, again, evidence of what we're seeing of too much water in some places, not enough in others on this warming planet. Meanwhile, at the bottom of the globe, this strange atmospheric river is heating up the South Pole in freakish ways, continues to stun scientists. The Larsen Ice Shelf C, the A and B fell years ago, could collapse any moment. It wouldn't lead to a jump in sea level rise, but it holds back all that inland ice, which over time could be very troublesome. So uh, a lot of strange happenings around the world when it comes to our climate change. All right, Bill Weir, thank you so much. Coming up next, a challenge for Ukrainians who've already overcome incredible odds, the upcoming competition to celebrate their resilience. Stay with us. We're in Ukraine, but yep, we're doing a sports lead because members of the Ukrainian military are competing in this weekend's Invictus Games. The event, founded by Prince Harry, was born on the idea of resilience 
Injured service members compete in sports such as rowing, archery, sitting volleyball, wheelchair basketball. Many of the Ukrainian athletes were on the front lines just days ago fighting for their country. They've arrived safely in the Netherlands, ready to fight for their country in a different, more enjoyable way. Yesterday, President Zelensky voiced support to the competitors over a video call. He says the country will wait for their return. He says, victory is important for us. It is important to prove that we are all unconquered. And your team is part of the spirit of indomitability of Ukraine, the Ukrainian people, and each of us. The game's inspiration draws from William Ernest, or William Ernest Henley's poem, Invictus, or Unconquerable. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And our best wishes to all the athletes at the games. A reminder, you can see my full exclusive interview with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky on State of the Union. That is Sunday morning at 9 o'clock Eastern, and then it replays again at noon Eastern. Dave Matthews will also join me Sunday morning to perform a new song in support of refugees. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, at Jake Tapper, or tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you know you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with Jim Acosta. He's in for Wolf Blitzer, but he still is in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.